It is said that there are between 118 to 138 pyramids in Egypt. The most well-known, of course, are in Giza. Now imagine the outcry if someone tried to alter one of these pyramids. Well, in humanistic psychology at least, there has only been one pyramid, Abraham Maslow's. And now, someone has dared to alter it. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It was a long, long time ago, a man named Abraham Maslow. Decided some of our needs take priorities over others. The year was 1953. Maslow invented this pyramid scheme. It's that little bit of a hierarchy of needs. Physiological needs. That's the need to satisfy hunger. Safety needs. That's the need to feel predictable. Shine out from the darkness of a cold Self-esteem There's a need for recognition Self-actualization Living up to our fullest potential If you've made it this far, perhaps you'll make it a little farther at the top of the charts. There's one more step. At the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Self-transcendent. Becoming one with your soul. I am absolutely delighted to welcome to Watching America Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. His latest book is entitled Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization. Now, that's based on the work of Abraham Maslow's, of course, Hierarchy of Needs. Now, I should tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Kaufman, and that is uh, he had a very disrupted early education. Um, he knew that in, in the best sense of the word, he was special, although not always recognized for that. Uh, he's done much research on a personal basis related to his formative years, where he realized that intelligence can be measured by different methods and by different, if you will, filters of appreciation. After that, he went on to uh, get his further education with a BS from Carnegie Mellon University, a Master's of Philosophy from King's College, Cambridge, and a PhD in Cognitive Psychology from Yale. He was born in Penn Wynn, Pennsylvania, which has a very large Jewish community. He grew up with an interest in music. At one point, I think he, he may have wanted to be Yo-Yo Ma, because he certainly plays the cello. He has a great passion and love for musicals, and I shall begin by asking Dr. Kaufman, uh, who's your favorite? Stephen Sondheim, Rogers and Hart, Andrew Lloyd Webber, who would you choose? Oh, boy. Um, I think uh, maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber, yeah, because I, I just love the really dramatic. Um, I, my, my goal was to be Javert and Les Mis when I, when I sang in college. So okay. I would have probably have to go with that. I right. do like Son Sondheim's a cool second, no doubt. <laughs> so do you, do you do it preferably in the, in, the, in the shower or do you sing everywhere, you know, just on, on the spur of the moment as, as so inspired? 
I'm working on an EP right now. I'm working on a, an album of uh, songs of growth and self-actualization that can inspire people. It's been years since I've I've sang seriously, so I'm trying to just get back into it and take voice lessons and with with a, an eye towards that goal. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, self-actualization. Of, of course, as I mentioned at the outset, the name Abraham Maslow comes uh, to mind immediately. And he was born in uh, 1908. He died, unfortunately, in 1970 in Menlo Park, jogging, of all things. Uh, one of the interesting things I noted about you is you made reference to something that he kind of had alluded to, and that's the idea of, well, in a sense, being familial or, or at least having a friendship with the dead. Now, when I say that, I'm not referring, obviously, to uh, necromancy. I'm not talking about communicating with the dead. But um, if you will, the in the aftermath of the loss of a person, discovering their work, discovering who they are, and yet feeling almost supernaturally attached to them. That happened to you, didn't it? Um, it did. I was sitting on my bed and listening to an, uh, a lecture he was giving at Esalen Institute in 1969. And he was talking about how he had felt like he had a kinship to those who came before him and uh, he never met. And he admitted it was a quite a lopsided relationship. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, he felt that there was a sort of intimacy there. And, and I definitely felt that way going through his personal journals and letters. You know, I, I spent hours and hours in the library, this musty library in Akron, Ohio, reading all these letters that that he wrote uh, with people and that but no one's ever read. And you just get such an insight into someone's mind. Although with obvious regret you weren't able to meet him personally, you did at least get to meet his offspring. You met his daughter and became friends with her and, and his granddaughter. What was that like? I did. Uh, it was really profound. I sat there actually, I was sat there reading to his uh, granddaughter and his only remaining daughter, who unfortunately now has passed away due to COVID. But uh, at the time, uh, I was reading the preface, a draft of the preface of my book to them, and I just I just bawled. I just broke down crying and mm. it was just too much for me to uh, emotionally handle reading something like that, where I was talking about how um, he changed my life and everything to his daughter and his granddaughter who were on the edge of their seat listening to me. It was, it was a really po poignant moment in my life. Well, I, I like your candor and I appreciate your uh, willing to acknowledge um, a legitimate emotionalism associated with uh, with the reward of having as close a proximity and contact with somebody who's deceased that you admire as one can, at least in this realm, in this world. My question is, did Abraham Maslow uh, actually provide answers that were germane and important in your own life to your own self-discovery? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. I try to think constantly about what does it mean to self-actualize and, and to what does that mean, the phrase mean, fulfill your full potential. You see it everywhere. You see it in um, almost every self-help book, right? The, 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 the promise is we're going to help you fulfill your full potential. And I really want to understand what that means. And, and nothing really hit the mark as much as the way Maslow framed it. And he talks a lot about the importance of self-transcending yourself paradoxically in order to realize your full self. Uh, that you never really, you never really self can self-actualize unless you're contributing to the good society and uh, and 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 getting outside of yourself in some way, where you're not so self-focused and where your ego is not the main driver of your experiences in life, but you're more driven by curiosity and love and a sense of purpose for what you, you want to put into the world. So those, his thoughts about, about what it, what it really means to self-actualize uh, as getting outside yourself really resonated with me in a very deep way. Is it fair to say, Dr. Kaufman, that one never actually finds a point of true arrival in self-actualization? It's, it's an ongoing process? Yeah, it is an ongoing process. Some people may talk about enlightenment, as though it's a, a an achievement that you a level that you unlock in a video game, but that's not I don't think the most helpful <laughs> way of thinking of viewing the the notion of of uh, enlightenment or even the the notion of self actualization because it's it's it, we're constantly every every one of our lives we're we're move we can either move towards fear or we can move towards growth every time we choose the growth option we're moving towards self actualization. Uh, but we never get there. And uh, how boring would that be to get there anyway? You know, imagine <laughs> uh, you get there, let's say you're, you're 60. 
Yeah. And then you, you get there and what are you going to do the rest of your life? It's going right. to be boring. Yeah. Yeah, well said. For those just joining us, let me point out very, very happily that my guest is Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. His latest book is Transcend, uh, which is interesting. It's a verb. It's an action. Transcend, the new science of self-actualization based, of course, on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, my guest has changed it. So let's get right into the book. And uh, as a foundation, uh, let me just briefly uh, work with my guests through the what you most of you have seen as a pyramid, although Maslow actually didn't design the pyramid. Um, for those of us who remember textbooks from the late 60s and early 70s, pyramids were very big in science books. And even if you think now of, uh, you know, the, 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 the complete food chart of what we're supposed to eat, that's still represented by a pyramid. So people like the, the form to trying to explain something which is not always helpful. But let's go with the basic one. And if you'd guide us through this, um, Dr. Kaufman, and, and and show us where you've amended and changed things. The very first level, uh, according to, to Maslow, was physiological needs. Uh, we need water, we need food, we need sleep, uh, we need oxygen and what have you. So that's the most basic for human survival. The next level up was the issue of safety, safety needs. Now, not only from, you know, uh, the idea, obviously, of predators, no one wants to be consumed, but in the modern day society, mainly having employment, resources, things of this nature. The next level up of a characteristic of, of a human need would be love and belonging. Now, uh, I'm sure you will go into the fact that you've kind of divided those up, which is interesting. We'll talk about that. But the love and the belonging aspect deals basically with friendship, intimacy, um, sense of well-being by uh, one's interaction with others around them, familial or otherwise. And then the next level up is esteem, uh, which refers to status, respect, recognition. And then finally, you get to the, at least in the, in the most commonly used illustrations of the pyramid, you get to that top level, self-actualization. However, my guest, Dr. Kaufman, has changed it. And from here on, sir, I'm going to let you explain what you've, what you've done to modify this work. Yeah, I modified it mostly in the spirit of Maslow's original writings, not how they've been misconstrued. Mm. He never actually drew a pyramid. Mm -hmm. uh, he, in none of his writings do you actually see a pyramid. And when he talked about the hierarchy of needs, he often talked about it's um, two-step forward, one-step back dynamic. It's not like life is a video game where you reach a certain uh, level of needs and then you uh, you hear some voice from above be like, congrats, you've unlocked uh, you know, belonging. You know, and then you can move up to the next one. And, uh, and then you don't have to worry about the prior level ever again. Uh, life is much more of a, an experience. Uh, you can choose growth, but then things, your plans, the best, best laid plans go astray or whatever the expression is. And you, uh, and, 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 and you have to pick yourself up again and, uh, and, and choose the growth option again. And, and uh, we can constantly move in and out of these different needs, depending on our life circumstances and, uh, as well as age and biology and uh, and lots of lots of genetics, lots of factors, but uh, and the human natural human development process. We we tend, for instance, as we age, our need for self esteem tends to decrease, um, and our our generative instincts tend to kick in more. Well, that's so, interesting. Why does, if yeah. I may interject, why does our need for self esteem tend to decrease as we get older? Do we just? That's because testosterone decreases. Okay, so it was. It isn't a case of giving up. Like I don't care anymore, you know. Because I, I, you know, all right, uh, manifestation of this, uh, and this is you know yeah. going to be very, very, very pedestrian. But uh, I've noticed, and I think some people do that. Not all, but as some people get older, they don't care about how they dress. Um, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's huge amounts of the populace that are older, and they, they suddenly they're not putting the emphasis into it. And and you know the common. Uh, Parlance is, oh, they've just given up. Oh, they don't care anymore and what have you. Is that part of the self-esteem thing or, or attributed to chemical change? I mean, there's probably different subclasses of adults. There are those who are single and there are those who aren't. <laughs> um, if you're quite old and you've been married 30 years, uh, you, you might you might just say forget it. So the sweatpants are okay. Yeah, but if you're like a 60-year-old person and you're, you're – you're on the dating scene. I think they probably care how they look. I think okay. that's probably part of the story. <laughs> okay. okay. So anyway, so uh, self-esteem tends to not be as much an issue as we get older and continue, sir. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
So these different uh, needs ebb and flow uh, among our lives. They're they're fluid. Uh, we can work on multiple needs simultaneously. Um, we don't have to wait until all systemic injustices in the world are 100% perfect before we can try to be happy in our lives. For instance, you know we can work on all these things simultaneously. Or, you know, or before we have to wait for our relationship to cultivate good relationships or or purpose or or uh, exploration of the world. Although certainly these things limit. Uh, so that's why I, dev I like to think of it more as a sailboat. Uh, with a sailboat, you have a boat that has our basic needs that must be met. And, uh, the holes have to be plugged to a certain degree or else we're not going to move anywhere. But if they are plugged to a certain degree, then we can really open up that sail and move uh, in, uh, in a purposeful direction despite the unknown of the sea, the winds, the, the waves that could come crashing down on us at any moment. This is uh, what we're, the kind of moment we find our, all of ourselves in with uh, the global pandemic. And, um, you know, we were all moving in our own direction and we didn't realize we just how much we were all in the same sea until the one big wave came crashing down on all of us at once. So, you know, I, I do think a, a sailboat is, is much more in line with the uh, notion Maslow had between deprivation needs and growth needs. You know, we, we can be motivated by our deprivations and we can, uh, you know, that, that's if we have holes in the boat. But ultimately, in order to grow and to self-actualize and transcend, we're going to have to open up that sail and, uh, and enter the growth or being realm of human existence, as Maslow referred to it. Well, let me give a visualization for people who are, are listening about your, your sailboat, um, which interestingly, certainly the sail part actually does have a, um, without question, a, a pyramid shape, but the hull doesn't. So ladies and gentlemen, if you would imagine a, a half circle uh, of, if you will, a moon or something like that, but the top half removed, and so you have the hull, and the hull actually looks like a half circle, uh, uh, submerged somewhat into the water. And at the very bottom of the hull, you have safety, then you go up to connection, and then slightly above the water on the, on the hull, you have uh, self-esteem. Then you have the main mast that goes up to the actual sail itself. And now you are above the horizon and imagine indeed a pyramid-shaped um, sail. And the next level up is exploration and then love and then finally purpose. But even above the sail, we have transcendence. Let me just go through this with you, all right? Um, it's, it's a very optimistic outlook. Uh, the, there's this implied message that one can change, one can transcend, one can improve. And what I like about your, uh, certainly your image of the sailboat, as you've pointed out elsewhere in here, is that it moves as a complete force in of itself. Um, how did you arrive at this, first of all? I mean, it's a pretty bold thing to do, to take... I'm not going to say it's, you know, holy writ, but certainly highly respected written material from one of the greatest human observers uh, in psychological history and to amend and change it. How, how did you begin to say, um, this can be perfected? I was preparing, I was teaching at University of Pennsylvania. I was teaching a course on positive psychology and looking and trying to look at the history of the field and teach that uh, to prepare for my lecture on the history of positive psychology and I discovered the rings of Maslow and, and fell in love with them. And then that led me to really diving deeper because I really like to wrap my head around something that I'm interested in. I really get absorbed in it. So I discovered he had his unpublished, he had, well, I guess they were published, but not many people had read them on Amazon, his, uh, the diaries, his personal diaries, two volume set. And I noticed it was like ranked five billion on Amazon. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, huh? I don't think that many people are reading this. Maybe I can make a contribution here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I sat down and devoted three months of my life, and I read cover to cover uh, every page of his two volume set, over a thousand pages of his personal diaries, and just discovered a whole new world. Discovered. Um, uh, uh, the way he really thought about self-actualization development. I also discovered that, you know, his own quirks, his own personal quirks and imperfections, which he admitted he had, you know, um, his own jealousies, his own anger at the students that he was teaching, for instance, for not appreciating him enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, all that was, yeah. that's part of what it means to be fully human is to accept all these sides of ourselves. But I, um, I, I, I really found it fascinating and uh, it, 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 
it inspired me, it inspired me to write this book, just go this journey to go. I love going on journeys. I love it. You know, isn't that a wonderful feeling when you, uh, you, something triggers something in you where you can see uh, before you a horizon of a journey ahead. Oh, I mean, to me, that's one of the most exciting things. That's why I like writing books every two years. I, I you know, I usually, after I write the book, I don't want to think about it again. <laughs> I'm on to the next one, the right. next idea. Right. Um, but, um, but at least for that beautiful two to four period of t- years, period of time, you can really, get fully absorbed in, in something. I, I like to do that. That's like a, how I like to live my life. Why did you separate love and belonging uh, as part of the, if you will, the hierarchy? I separate love. And not only do I separate, I, there are lots of things to separate because I'm a systematizer. So within the need for connection, I separated the need for belonging from the need for intimacy. Uh, and then I separate love from both of those things. So just to make it even more complicated, but to answer your, your actual question, your question, love from connect. Can we say the distinction between love and connection instead of love and belonging? Sure. That's what's complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the difference between love and connection is that we can feel a great sense of belonging to a, a group organization. Um, and, and then, you know, like a political organization, you're like, Oh, I belong. And then, you know, like the second you disagree with the main tenets of the group, you know, they, they're going to, you think they're still gonna? You still gonna feel like you belong there? <laughs> like it's a very, it's a very fake. I hate things that are fake. Mm-hmm. I, um, it's a very fake form of belonging or connection. Um, intimacy involves a, a mutual relatedness, um, a real caring unconditionally, unconditional positive regard, as uh, Carl Rogers, the, the humanist psychotherapist, put it. Um, so that's why I like distinguishing belonging and intimacy. But but love is 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 even a higher, more spiritual form of. Um, uh, of love, the, all these are all these things are kinds of, I guess, sense forms of love. But, but, um, uh, but what Maslow called being love, which is what I focus on in the love chapter of my book, is love for the being of others. You know, what does it mean to love someone, uh, even though you might not even like them? You know, uh, and not only that, but you might not agree with them in in lots of different areas. Uh, but uh, you're, you're you recognize recognize you're not the same people. And can you still love the being of someone else who is not the same being as you? And I think you can. I think you can, you can cultivate that. But, uh, but so many people get stuck in the belonging uh, deprivation motivation that they don't uh, ever uh, transcend that. Scott, let me, let me ask you, um, Abraham Maslow at one point used a very interesting turn of phrase. He talked about a civil war going on within himself. And as you have noted by going through his diaries – uh, was it discernible, this civil war going on inside himself? And on some level, was he looking at the hierarchy of needs as a potential antidote to that? Quite possible. Quite possible. He he, he had uh, multiple uh, warring factions within himself. Uh, he definitely had one between uh, his tender side, his more spiritual side, shall we say, and his more rational, philosophical, purely intellectual side. I think those two were always warring with each other. I think it was only his later couple of years of his life that he was really able to integrate all those aspects of his being to uh, to come to a higher level of integration and a peace, a deep inner peace within himself. Uh, that was a big one. Uh, he also suffered a lot from this. Uh, and these are just common inner conflicts that we all have, by the way. Um, he, he saw uh, he had this conflict between wanting to be liked by people to wanting to be uh, to have a connection, but also willing to be seen as the Messiah, be seen as you know above people and the great the great prophet of wisdom, um, and and I think that uh, that's a that's a common inner conflict among these kind of figures. Uh, they deeply deeply want to connect, but they don't really want to connect that much because they they also want to still be seen as top banana. You know what I mean? Yeah. With these, you know, uh, evident dialectical... I've never used that phrase before, top banana. I like it. <laughs> it's a good vaudeville <laughs> term. I like that. You know, he's top uh, yeah, banana. Yeah. You know, the, like the kind it. of stuff you'd hear in the Catskills, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but with these, you know, evident dialectical tensions that the man had in his life, were you astonished that uh, this work was included in his diary? Did he ever intend for his diaries to be published or, or was that something that happened posthumously? 
And yeah, I think he always wanted these things, his journals to be uh, uh, really for posterity. You know, when, when he was young, I, I, he wrote a, a diary in middle school and high school. I have those diaries too. <laughs> and he would say, yay, writings of Abe Maslow uh, on this date. Uh, let this be the record of the writings of Abe. I think he just from a very, very young age saw himself as the type of person who would be remembered by future generations. I think that's just really interesting. You know, these kind of people, they create that. And he did. He became that. Here I am trying to, reading his journal. So, yeah. yeah well, it reminds me of John Lennon who said to his auntie, he said, you know, he said, you know, one day you're going to be going through the rubbish to get that stuff back that you've just thrown away. <laughs> <laughs> because he knew he had this sense that his writings would be worth a fortune, which, you know, was prophetic. They, uh, they certainly were. Well, uh, there's something to that, you know, that's another detour of a conversation I'd understand. I'd forgive you if you didn't want to go go down that road. But there's something that we, to the secret <laughs> in the sense that we do create um, a world in which we, we want by fully believing it, believing in it. Yes. Because it, yes. it creates the – it reverberates. Yeah. Know, our, our thoughts reverberate outside ourselves. I'm reminded of the story of Cary Grant, who, um, you know, was very dashing, spoke like this all the time. And his real name was Archibald Leach, uh, which incidentally was used <laughs> as a character in A Fish Called Wanda by um, by one of the members <laughs> of the Python team. But uh, people said, you know, how, how are you so debonair and charming? And he said, one day I realised I was Archibald Leach, but I was going to wake up the next day as Cary Grant. And I became him, <laughs> you know, and I think there's something to that, you know, that we become what we project. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. I kind of, I kind of, I was thinking about renaming my name from Scott Barry Kaufman to uh, Dr. Scott Barry Smooth. <laughs> well, you know, people, know. They, people might call you Barry Smoothie, you know, and, and that would be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'd be, well, that'd be awkward. Yeah. It'd be like yeah, Cherry yeah. Garcia ice cream, you know? So, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. so, um, all right. So now let's get back to the book and, and you've, you've changed and reformatted things. One of the things that I find that is consistent between both you and your predecessor in the, in the, in the form of uh, Maslow is an acknowledgement of spirit. And, you know, I often will say once in a while to a guest, I was a couple, well, one particular guest I had a while back on the show, and I said, do you see yourself primarily as body, mind, or spirit? And the person responded, all three. Um, but I sense strongly that there is definitely a, a spirituality to your, to your mindset, as there was with, uh, with Maslow. Uh, is, is that endemic? Did that just come from birth, or was that developed in, for instance, the Jewish community you grew up in? Both of you are of Jewish descent. Um, so you have this, this, through Torah, you have this awareness of, um, of this realm not necessarily being the only thing. How, how do you account for that in your own uh, psychological framework. Oh, it's a very interesting point. Um, I, I, I never made, really made that linkage to my early childhood experiences in like synagogue, but there definitely is a connection there, and uh, and how I was raised. But my my form of spirituality and his form of spirituality really is not tied to religion. It really is a universal form of spirituality that. Uh, appreciates the experience versus the beliefs. I, I'm really big in my research in distinguishing between experience and belief. I think that any of us, no matter what God we worship, or even if we don't worship any God, for atheists, that we can all rally around very similar spiritual uh, transcendent experiences, such as the uh, awe. You know, take the awe experience, A-W-E uh, experience. My my colleague David Eden refers to it as the every person's spiritual experience. It's the one that we can all rally around. We get it. You know, maybe we can't all understand and wrap our heads around what it means to have a, a mystical experience, but we certainly know know what it, it means to look at something um, uh, with reverence that's uh, far greater than ourselves. And if this is not too personal, when have you experienced such fear yourself in your own life? I often experience it when I'm writing, to be honest, when I get in the flow state and um, and really, uh, really get absorbed deeply in, in something and, and everything else recedes in the background. I'm really, I'm working on something and working on a project and, and the words are flowing. To me, that's a quite a spiritual experience. 
I want you know to. What I, mean? to yeah, I do know what you mean, and I, I'm I'm saying this with no false flattery. Um, having read your book, I was very much appreciative of the fact that you are a good writer. And what I mean by that Aww. is, well, let me explain. What I mean by that is that um, good writing uh, is 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 time consuming, and what you do is you make complicated uh, uh, concepts accessible to the reader. You are very, um, uh, I would say, economical in uh, not wasting the reader's time, and yet there's nothing that would be less than a sense of thoroughness in what they read of your work. And I, I was uh, commented to my wife. I said, "This is man has a mastery of how he puts thoughts down and flows with them." Oh. And um, you are very diligent and and uh, well crafted in how you write, and that's a delight and a pleasure, which caused me to read it. And um, so I want to just, you know, uh, there's no profit for me in saying this, ladies and gentlemen. If you're interested in psychology, if you're interested in yourself and others, um, you would not only find this by topic an interesting book, but also a great comfort to read. Um, it's not pandering. It's not um, in any way diminished or, or, or patronizing in the way it's written. Um, it's an adult level, intellectual level, but extremely well crafted. Uh, like a a well-polished stone rather than something with rough edges. Um, how did well, you learn well, to write? Oh, gosh, you just, you just made my 2021, and that will carry me on the rest of the year. So thank you. Oh, uh, well, it's sincere. <laughs> or I wouldn't say it. I mean, I... I, I know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That meant a lot to me, so thank you. So when when you finished this, what was your hope for your reading audience? What was what, what, what was your point? You thought to yourself, this is what I really want the outcome of this book to be. Now, there's a, a special close to it, which I'm not going to reveal because you want to keep that obviously uh, a nice pleasant surprise which it is but what was your feeling as you wrote the book and the conclusion did you say to yourself i have this target person in mind that i imagine or did you just see it broad and wide for whomever should pick the the tome up interestingly enough i wanted to bring in the highly spiritual audience um, and the self-help people you know the kind of people that like you know uh uh, listen to Tim Ferriss. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like people really interested in bettering them themselves and their lives, and um, and I I feel like there there was I want like I wanted them to know the science of this stuff. You know, there's there's so many different ways that people in this space say the same thing, and. I'm not as big, personally, I'm not that big into branding. Like I don't have, not all these things have to be associated with me, right? Like it's not like, like all my brilliant ideas. Um, there's great wisdom uh, from the past. And, uh, and this was a big ode to Maslow who had a lot of great wisdom on it, but it was also my scientific work that I spent the last 20 years now trying to uh, look at in various ways. And I want to put that work together in a way to share it with others. When you finished the book, how had it transformed you? <laughs> well, my goal was not achieved of how it would transform me. So here's a little, uh, here's something I haven't told maybe anyone. <laughs> the original, the original title of the book, before the publishers changed it for marketing purposes. The, so the, the the reason the title I was working under this book for three three years under the title of, and here it is. How to be a whole person. That was supposed to be what the book was going to be called. Mm. And so I had a goal that I set out when I got the book contract. I said, when I publish this book, when it's out, I will have been a whole person. <laughs> well, <laughs> suffice, it to, suffice it to say, that has not come about. Well, you could, have, you could have gone with how to be a near whole is, person. <laughs> <laughs> a near, yeah, exactly. I can categorically say I have about just as much Meshuggah now <laughs> as I did when I when I started writing the book. However, I ha- that doesn't mean I haven't changed or grown in important ways. Um, and and I'd say one big way I grew is first of all recognizing how silly that goal was to begin with. That's actually I consider that growth and wisdom. Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel more wise in a sense. In a lot of ways, I feel more wise and um, uh, about uh, the complexities of what it means to be human, and what uh, and and what it means to really accept yourself 
fully radically accept yourself and um, feel like I've accepted a lot of my Meshuggah more. So while, whilst, whilst, uh, I don't rarely use that phrase, but you brought That's that up. That's a good one. I like that. Uh, thanks. <laughs> whilst I, I didn't become a whole person, I became better at accepting the fact that I never will become a whole person. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And there's an integrity with that recognition. One of the things that strikes me about you, um, and, you know, one is uh, on most shows, people are reluctant to say things such as I'm about to say, but my audience now has gotten to know me over the over the period of time I've been doing this. Um, it's as though people are afraid to invoke the word love. You strike me as an extremely loving person. Um, Maslow talked about two different forms of love, D-love, as he called it, and B-love. Would you like to share the distinction between the two? Yeah, D-love is when we're motivated uh, by uh, experiences that can give us a greater sense of love because we have such a deficiency in love or we feel such a deficiency in our lives. So it almost comes out of a place of desperation and need. But B-love, or some people have called it unneeding love, um, is uh, this great uh, ability and capacity to both receive love from others and to give love away unconditionally. And can a person who is subject to D-love needs evolve into being a B-lover? Oh, yeah. I love the phrase "be lover." I, if I was a, 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 like a John Lennon kind of rock band singer, that I would have a song called "Be a Be Lover." <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you can see it, right? You can see yeah. it in your head. Or you can be a blues guitarist I'll, and call yourself "Be Be Lover." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did used to sing <laughs> opera, but I feel like that kind of song doesn't really lend itself to opera. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, well. you give it a shot. So, yeah, yeah. but how do you but, evolve uh, into yes, it? Yes. And, and how would one go about that? I mean, first of all, it would have to be organic, right? I mean, the person wants to love. You can't just say, somebody can't wake up and just say, today I'm going to be loving. Uh, is, isn't it some degree uh, required to be innate in the personality? That's funny because I completely disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> I think that uh, as my, my friend uh, Sharon Salzberg puts it, you know, love is a freely given gift. And I think it's one of those things that you can wake up every single morning and set an intention. No, no, no. I, 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 no, oh, no, okay. I agree with you on that one. I, what I'm saying is some people, vi and, and you still may disagree, which is fine. Um, you'll just be wrong. So um, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I, I think some people can uh, just innately wake up and they have a, a loving disposition. It doesn't mean that people can't uh, learn about love. They can. They can observe it and say, that's hey, that's true. a nice thing. But I think if somebody says, uh, you know, as a, as a method, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be loving. Yeah, you can do loving gestures. And people can say, well, if you love, and, and there's the old thing of, you know, if you act lovingly towards somebody, you will begin to love them anyway. Um, it's kind of an outgrowth of the action. But uh, I guess what I'm asking, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to agree with me and maybe I'm, I'm far more cynical. I but I, I, I just think that I don't think one can manufacture love. One can produce loving acts, but I don't think you can uh, manufacture love unless there's something that's genuine, authentic to stir that love. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, there's definitely personality disposition differences. I looked at the light versus dark triad, you know, as I read about in the book, and um, kind of the, uh, the everyday psychopath versus the everyday saint. And there's definitely a, a character difference in personality, temperament rooted in biology, genetics, as well as life experiences. So that certainly is true. But I think it's an interesting question. You know, I, I play with different ideas in my head because I, I don't I'm not so interested in being right as I am in being in, in, in understanding. Yes. Um, but so I play around with lots of ideas. Let's play around with the idea for a second that that all humans are loving are loving beings, um, but some people uh, suppress those instincts um, because they're committed to hate. You know, what if you thought about it that way? You know, like some people um, are so committed to hate, they really are. Um, they uh, because because uh, they think it's the only way to uh, get their own goals in in life. Um, that 
some of those people that we that seem like the antithesis of loving people um, have these kinds of spiritual experiences or have these kind of mystical experiences that completely transform them and make them get in touch with something a loving uh, part of their being that is actually a sense of, of oneness uh, where they recognize they're part of a, a much larger part of the universe. Now I understand this all sounds very woo woo. Um, I do. I have argued and made the case that there's often wisdom in the woo-woo um, when it's on a scientific foundation. I think this one's on a scientific foundation. I think that there are these individual differences um, of uh, patterns of personality that show what we tend to, uh, how we tend to respond to the world, how we tend to act. Um, but I have also written articles about how it, we can, uh, through different habits of being, we change uh, the, our, those habits in such a fundamental way that we actually change who we are. Scott, one of the things I like about you, um, there's quite a few things I like about you, um, is your unabashed um, accessibility and in, in openness uh, and candor. Uh, for somebody with your credentials and your work experience, um, you are amazingly unaffected and um, natural and uh, willing to show vulnerability on, on multiple levels, which is extremely refreshing. And I had um, a Jewish mother. Well, explain that to me. That's interesting. I've got this image of you, a beamer, you know, with the, with the mignon of men around you and your, your bar mitzvah and your mother giving you some great advice. <laughs> no, you know, my, my parents, I feel like really instilled in me, um, you know, good, uh, tried, tried to instill in me, a, 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 you know, a, a healthy self-esteem. Yes. You know, which is it's important to have a healthy self-esteem that's different than narcissism. Um, you know, healthy self-esteem is you know an accurate understanding of of who you are and, and your capacity is feeling a sense of worth, a feeling a sense of competence, but not not thinking that you're better than others, not thinking that you're um, uh, that you're entitled to anything in the world. I, I very rarely feel like I'm entitled to anything. I, I feel such a great appreciation. Well, that you asked me to be on your show, I feel a great appreciation. When I'm walking down the street, if someone smiles at me, um, I feel like this happened today. A really cute girl smiled at me. I was taking a run, and and I, I felt such a great appreciation and gratitude that that just moment just happened to me in my life. I don't know. I think we just need to. Um, I don't know if that was TMI, but I, I do feel like we need to appreciate um, uh, whatever goodness comes our way, and not not feel like in any of those instances was it something that we were entitled to. When you lay your head on the pillow at night, uh, what are your predominant thoughts? Um, oh boy! I have—I mean, I have an existential crisis every night before I go to bed, and every day when I wake up. <laughs> that is so encouraging. Oh, that is so encouraging. <laughs> it's, it's well, I love it. I love it when the expert is open. Yeah. This goes back to this underscores what I was saying about you. Here's a man, you know, uh, it's interesting. There's, uh, uh, there's a, an account in the New Testament where somebody walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, here's a man without guile. Uh, and, and I think that applies to you. You're very candid and honest. So you have a lot of existential angst when you lay your head down. Uh, do you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I do. The, the, those are the two moments where I feel it the most. And then there's like a, a, like a certain window of every day where I, um, it's like the, the robot, you like activate it, it turns on, and then it, it focuses on, on the day. But, but then I feel like that illusion of, of all that kind of goes away at certain moments. And I, I, sometimes I don't know what the illusion is, to be honest, and what the reality is. Um, is the existential crisis uh, the illusion or is it me having these moments of seeing reality where I um, suddenly uh, recognize the impermanence of life and, um, and the uh, impermanence of my parents' life um, and, um, and of all sentient beings? Um, I think that uh, there are these moments where I'm just uh, overpowered with emotion um, because I'm seeing something that I think I'm seeing so clearly that I, um, during the hours of 10 to four o'clock when I'm working and writing and distracted, I don't see as clearly, but I don't know, this is getting a little deep. No, it's, it's, it's real. Have you ever had the experience of having such a profound, such a, if you will, a wash of profundity come over you that you can't get the words down on paper fast enough? Well, it happened, that happened to me um, a couple of weeks ago. 
I was laying on my bed. I, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the process of trying to get down on paper. It just was like a moment of such overwhelming emotion that it was just hard to cope with. So maybe that's not exactly what you're saying. Um, getting the, the getting it down on paper part, because that, that can happen sometimes in manic states, you mm-hmm. know, um, but I've, I've really, um, I, I'm, I'm prone to a personality trait called hypomania that I think is very underrated and is a beautiful personality trait. It's not, some people might associate it with mania, like bipolar disorder, um, but it's just a personality trait. It's something that we're all in a bell curve of. It's called hypomania. Um, and it, it's, I'm, I'm definitely prone to hypomania. Uh, at least I, I used to be more so, I will say, uh, than, than uh, I think this is maybe me growing and me becoming more wise or me uh, mature in some way but those 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 peaks are not as much as what Mazo called the plateaus um, the plateau of experience of the as opposed to the peak experience I'm, I'm not trying to, to to search for the highs um, as much as I am trying to have a steady dose of lounging in heaven not getting so excited about it as Maslow said so is it f- uh, fair to say that the hypomania is is a form of uh, hypo, hypo, hypo. Hypo, not, excuse me, hypomania? Is it a form of um, uh, environmental ecstasy of the moment? Maybe uh, I think it also could be the uh, too much caffeine. <laughs> too much too much coffee okay yeah. right. will do that to me <laughs> yeah. let me just ask you about the afterlife um, one of the you know obviously uh, getting back to Maslow and your own work the whole idea of safety needs employment resources family's part of that even though that would come under you know uh, elsewhere the next level up love belonging etc um, h- how do you suppose Maslow uh, looked at death himself. Now, he probably had no idea that day when he was in Menlo Park and he was going out for a a jog or a Palo Alto or wherever Mm -hmm. it may have been specifically when he dropped dead. Um, From your understanding, how did he look at um, our at least physical demise? He definitely came to this conclusion in the last couple of years of his life and really was quite strong in the last couple months of his life that human... The, the, the capacity to overcome the fear of death, it was the secret to unlocking the key to human existence. That, that, that was it. You know, that if you could, that was the last frontier. If you could overcome that fear, your life would change that moment forevermore. You would, uh, you would be able to have a, what, what he called a, a post-mortem life. He felt like he was living a post-mortem life after he had a heart attack for the first time and continued to live. He said, everything from here on is just gravy. Now, maybe he wouldn't have used that phrase if it wasn't the 60s. But uh, everything on from this point forward is um, is, 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 is a, a post-mortem uh, life where everything has a beautiful poignancy to it, a beautiful um, uh, transcendent quality to it. I think all of us can really uh identify with with the experience of seeing a tree one day and not seeing anything special about it but having a moment at another time where you see the same tree Mm. and it looks beautiful to you and i think the more that we can cultivate that in our daily lives where the everyday uh is is miraculous um that is actually the secret to life it's not uh what we often what this, the the load of bills that were sold in success magazines? No offense. I guess there is a bit of an offense there, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> to success <laughs> magazines, <laughs> I guess there's no way around that. I did just just knock them a bit. Yeah. Well, I think the experience of being enthralled is even greater when uh, it's not only trees but with persons. I've had that experience where you suddenly look at a person differently, of course. Uh, and, and how enriching that is. Going through the the, the steps to uh, we're coming to a conclusion of this interview quite soon, but going to you know, beyond peak experience to self-actualization, uh, which you've even put beyond the sale. Uh, at various steps along the way, um, people are dealing with loneliness, and loneliness is extremely pervasive. Um, how does loneliness fit in with, with all these steps? Now, again, as you pointed out, I must uh, be quick and hasten to say, it's not like a video game going to different layers. You can simultaneously be going through all these different phases in variable degrees at the same time. Um, but how does loneliness fit in and and what potential redemptive factor is there to help a person through that based on what you've discovered? 
Well, loneliness is not a very comfortable feeling, uh, and in in its most extreme manifestations, can actually um, lead to death. Uh, not just suicide, but but loneliness can affect our uh, our health, our functioning, our uh, nervous system. So it, it's 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 a it's a terrible uh, feeling, terrible experience. But I think that the more we recognize that. Uh, all these experiences are part of being human. All these feelings, whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable, are uh, um, are fodder for growth and for meaning in our lives, and to make us uh, think about how we may want to live our lives differently or uh, fuel us to make changes in our lives. Um, they don't need it. Doesn't need not be as as uh, catastrophic as we tend to think it is. I, I do think that we're sold a bill of goods, not only in our success magazines, but in our, are there happiness magazines? I guess there were, but like, you know, magazines that tell you, uh, give you pressure that somehow you don't feel like you're living a, a full life if you're somehow not happy or successful. And I would say uh, uh, you're, you're probably not doing it right if you're happy and successful. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The title of your book is Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. It strikes me as I talk to you and maybe I'm reading more into this, and please rebuke me if I'm wrong here, but both looking at your writing and the writing of Maslow, um, the term self-actualization is used, but it's really, in a sense, what I'm getting is selfless actualization. Can you understand why I would say that? I do understand what you're saying there, but I think that we can distinguish between the ego and the self. I think that great, the great paradox that I try to uh, get get through in the book uh, is that those it's often those who most get outside themselves uh, who have the strongest sense of self. It's really those who are most self-absorbed and self-focused who feel the most confusion over who they really are. So I think that it's important to uh, recognize that paradox and also to uh, distinguish, uh, uh, to, to recognize that a false dichotomy often exists when we talk about selfishness versus selflessness. I think it's a false dichotomy. At the, at the highest level of transcendence and wisdom, uh, what is good for you is simultaneously in a synergistic fashion good for the good society. Very encouraging. My guest has been Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. He is the author of Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization, which, as we've said throughout the last hour, is based on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You are a warm soul, a gracious soul, and uh, you are part of the fabric of varying personalities that make the mosaic that we call America. I can't thank you enough for being a part of Watching America. The book, again, is called Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization. And as I said, genuinely, unguardedly, earnestly, it is an extremely well-written book, and I would encourage uh, you, if you are interested in such matters, to by all means seek it out and get it. Again, Scott, God bless you. Thank you so very much for being a part of this show. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Previous editions of Watching America are always available. Simply go to your search engine and type NPR space Watching America. Watching America can also be found by verbal command on many devices. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.